welcome to Conversations About Life. Good morning, Father David Kendrick. Thanks for being a part of this conversation with me. Thank you uh, for inviting me. Glad to be here. So you are an Episcopalian priest in Springfield, Missouri. Correct. And that's about all I know of you. I, I did look at your Facebook page and like your quote, um, something along the lines, you have one foot planted uh, firmly in the 21st century and one in the second century. Is that how you put it? <laughs> Fourth century, but yeah, pretty much. Basically one foot in the patristics, one mm. one foot in the moderns. <laughs> I see. Good. As a way just to start off, I thought I would just ask you, uh, why Christianity? Why are you a Christian? Ah, that's a good question. Um, You know, I suppose all of us, wherever people have lived, they've always heard God speaking to them uh, through the the area that they're in, and they've heard God in different ways. I think, and I guess... You know, I was raised uh, Southern Baptist, and I mm-hmm. think at an early age, I guess in one sense, now that I think about it, I, I could say I really do consider myself a child of grace. Um, my mother told me uh, that when I was born, I was born with too much phlegm in, in my uh, respiratory system, and Mm-hmm. So I, I was choking in the hospital, but then they thought I was better and they sent me home. And about five days later, basically when I was only about five days old, I apparently got too much phlegm again and they had to rush me to the hospital. And my mother said my face had literally turned blue. So I almost died uh, when I was uh, five days old. Um, so, you know, that's just one place where I think I've just... I, I know that I'm a child of grace. And so I think as a child, I, even as a child, I, I just kind of sensed a goodness in the world. And, and, a, and I just, for that, and it just seemed to me, you know, there's goodness. And somehow I want to be great, more connected to the, to the source of uh, that goodness. And what I learned from my uh, parents was, well, that's through uh, Jesus Christ you know, the son of God. And I was at an early age, I was, I was baptized, um, at the age of nine. Okay. Um, and then when I, as I got older and this was the seventies. So, so that was a time when there was a more emphasis on needing to be born again in this and I was hearing this even after I'd been baptized and I was thinking, well, I thought I was saved right? I, do I need to be born again, even though I've, I've already been baptized? And that led to, when I was a, as a teenager, I had, you might say, salvation anxiety. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, 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 I went to a, a, a revival and I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, but that was like the, that was more of an emotional thing. And once the emotion wore off, you're still kind of wondering, well, where are you? How do you, where are you with God? Where are you with Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, really the, the great theological crisis of my life came 
at the age of 17 when my mother died very suddenly. Hmm. And so I, you know, for, I would say for most of my college years, I was, I was really, I was so mad at God, I couldn't spit. Um, I really wondered, well, well, then I really did wonder, well, maybe, maybe if there are gods, they, they don't really care. They've just set this ball rolling, you know, uh, or maybe we're, or maybe we're just play things like in the Iliad, you know, um, I suppose then. What happened was it just it just there were so many people who came into my life at different points in, in those years who loved me and I grew to love them. And so eventually what I came to realize, well, first of all, I realized if we are looking, if we believe in God, because we think God is going to keep anything bad from happening to us, that's that's not going to get you very far. Um mm-hmm. But I also realized, okay, God, God's not our puppet master. God's not pulling our strings. But things happen in this world. However, there, there's always still love. And when I realized, okay, um, I'm still loved, even though the person I had loved up until that point, the person I'd loved the most was no longer here physically, uh, I'm still loved, and if therefore, if I'm still loved, then there must still be love. And and you know, and the one thing that um, that Jesus reveals about God is that God is love, and that's from First John. And so that kind of was well helped brought, bring me back to the church that I that that really deep belief. One, I feel like I've always been a child of grace, and that God is love, and I've seen that love uh, in my life. And as much as I may have lost, I know God has given me more. Hmm. So just a sense of the nature of reality, um, thinking, um, seeing it as fundamentally that there is love and and grace for you. And that's what, um, I guess, you know, brought you back and attracted you to at least theism, and then you were already had that Christian background. And um, so that's what made sense to you. It sounds like Christianity is opposed to something else. Yeah, I think love. And, um, and, it, and, and as an adult, when I was coming back, um, I was more drawn to the Episcopal Church. I think that the, the, the sacraments, the, the, the understanding that, that – um, well, you know, we believe that, you know, in the Episcopal Church, you know, we are we're very similar to Roman Catholics in that we we do believe um, that the, the Eucharist is the is where Jesus meets us in bread and wine and that Jesus is fully present in bread in the bread and wine that we consume. And so it was sort of like, OK, um, you know, this is my this is the blessed assurance. I don't need to go looking. I don't need to go accept. I don't need to go looking for some mountaintop emotional experience. Uh, every Sunday, Jesus comes into me because he said so. This is my body. This is my blood. And so mm-hmm. that, so I think that was really that the, I, I have found, you might say, my blessed assurance um, in the Episcopal Church. My, so I, I grew up Southern Baptist. In fact, I still go to a Southern Baptist church 
And, and there's some similarities in like what you're describing is what I experienced, like the salvation anxiety. And you mentioned nine. That's about the time I was experiencing salvation anxiety. I was, um, you know, of course, hearing about hell and not wanting to go there, wanting to do whatever I could to make sure that, you know, I wouldn't go there. So at the end of the service, I would respond to like the um, invitation and they gave me a card to fill out and I filled that out. But I, I got baptized. Um, I asked my mom, you know, what should I do? She gave me um, some of those little tracks with um, Bible verses through them and then a prayer at the end. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, if I could just pray that prayer sincerely enough and just believe enough, then Shazam, something would happen and I would experience what I had heard other people talk about. And it was a frustrating time. And eventually I just kind of put that all to the back of my um, mind and went on with life. And um, throughout my teenage years, I kind of became just a a kind of a rebellious, hateful kid um, getting into falling into whatever, you know, the typical sins of teenage years. And um, when I got to 18, I, um, I think it was like a kind of a low point in my life. And I um, just felt morally disgusting with who I was. And I remember just asking God to save me from who I had become, you know, save me from myself, what I w- was. And I wasn't expecting anything, but it was, it was like just a load of guilt was lifted from me. And I um, just physically felt as light as a feather. And it, it seemed like a spiritual encounter with God where he was confirming to me, you know, I'm, I'm forgiven. And a whole new world opened up to me. Um, like the, I suddenly had an interest in the Bible, in the church, in the things like that. But I think that for me, the difference, it seems like, like earlier, I was just trying to save my skin um, and do whatever I could do to do that. But later it was, there was this understanding that I needed to be saved because of my heart, because of who I was. Um, So that's the way I make sense of it. Um, And it seems like um, for people, like sometimes that sin or understanding that is like a gateway into, you know, a relationship with God. Is that, um, so did like, uh, was that, did that play a part in, in coming, um, you know, back to God or coming or in your, you know, kind of getting started with God? Like for you, did you, um, have that, um, you know, tangling with sin and, uh, or wrestling with it and finding something in, in God for resolution or, or help? Well, I think, well, sin is a struggle for all of us. You know, Um, you know, and and I I probably not with a lot of the things that you might normally think, because I mean, and and part of that was um, and this is kind of in my own family dynamics. um, You know, I was the younger brother. My my older brother was four years older than me. He's the one who really got into a lot of the struggles. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of physical, uh, he, he, he started doing drugs when he was 12. And to be honest, he never really 
I don't think he ever really totally got off of drugs until he died in 2015. Um, so in some ways, I was the I was the good kid. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I was almost like the older brother. You know, I was one who generally didn't get into trouble. Now, there's some things where basically I didn't get caught. Okay. <laughs> You know, but, um, you know, so probably no, I don't know that for me, the sin and, you know, sin is defined essentially as alienation from God and each other. I mean, the first sin, the first sin really was when, uh, the first man, the first woman, um, and that's, you know, in Genesis, they, they didn't trust God. They felt like they, they they felt like well I maybe I need to get some leverage on God. And the forces of rebellion against God, which gets personified as the snake in Genesis, said, "Well, here's a way you can get leverage on God. You'll get this knowledge. You'll know what God knows." And mm-hmm. so, and so it's it's really mistrust. That's really the first sin is mistrust. And and as soon as the first man, the first woman stopped trusting God, then they suddenly looked at each other and, oh, I, I can't trust you, can I? <laughs> we can't trust each other. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, sin is a condition. And, I, and I'm not saying that in a, now clearly that condition plays itself out in actions that are objectively wrong. Um... But sometimes when I'm counseling people, I, I think it's important to try to get underneath. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. Okay. But maybe we need to figure out why, <laughs> what, mm-hmm. what, what's yeah. in your life that led that to these acts. Um, and again, sin is essentially when we don't, when we are alienated from God, we also are alienated from each other. And so, um, so to me, sin is, is really about figuring out a way, how do we, how do we get to a point where we can have faith and faith is really trust. How do we get to a point where we trust our creator and know that whatever, whatever day-to-day things happen in our life, whatever tragedies might occur, whatever things that, that are, that are simply imposed upon us that we are still always, and I'm quoting now uh, a, a medieval nun, Hildegard of Bingen, um, we are all feathers on the breath of God. And, and God has us on God's breath. And so, you know, however far we think we're falling, we will finally land in God's hands. And so, um, and so, you know, and then through the years, I mean, there is, there are the things that where we, we act out and, and, and a lot of the things that people often confess are the acting out of a deeper uh, malaise or a deeper sense of mistrust of God. And so uh, that's where I think we, I, I try to help people get to the heart of an issue, you know, uh, where, 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 where are you not able to trust Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Last night I was talking with my kids and a daughter 
asked me, um, you know, so she was talking with one of her friends and they were talking about the Christian faith. And she asked me, so, so what's the difference between us and Roman Catholics? And the thing that comes to my mind that's the most uh, fundamental difference, and I'm bringing this up because I think that it's probably the same thing with, you know, Episcopalian, is, sure. is that the nature of the sacraments. So um, from, you know, our viewpoint, the Southern Baptist viewpoint, um, Jesus died for our sins as a sacrifice, which is the same thing that like a Roman Catholic or an Episcopalian would believe. Um, Mm -hmm. But, um, but a more sacramental viewpoint as you all, as you have would be um, that we receive those benefit, that benefit of what Jesus did for us through the sacraments, through baptism, through, taking the the bread and the wine, the Eucharist. And um, whereas I guess my perspective on it from just, you know, from where I am, it's, um, well, that's what he did. There's not like, uh, that's enough. You know, he died for my sins and, and sure I, um, baptism and, you know, we're told to baptize and we take the, the bread and the wine and, but it's more of remembering what he did. Um, the baptism was more of like showing one's allegiance to Jesus, you know, to the congregation, to the world and so forth. Um, but we don't see it as, um, um, like needing to do something to receive the benefits of, of Jesus his death and resurrection. Is that, am I kind of explaining like the, fundamental difference there between a sacramental viewpoint um, and a non-sacramental viewpoint? Um, let me, if I can, let me ask a question of you to just try to clarify if I, if I think I'm, if I, if I'm understanding you correct, do you, is it your perception that more sacramental Christians think that they are trying to do something to to earn salvation. Um, no, um, I may have that may have been um, a thought in the past, but it's not like doing good works to earn, um, or at least based on the conversation I had with a Roman Catholic man sure. recently, it's not so much to do good works to earn one's salvation, but more of we receive um, through the sacraments what Jesus had done has done for us. Like he died for our sins. He paid uh, the price. It was a sacrifice and we're, we're forgiven through that. Well, how do we receive that? Because that's of, uh, of course not, you know, not everyone just automatically benefits from that. So how do we benefit from it? Um, so I guess from, um, my viewpoint, um, it's just faith identifies me as one who benefits from it, that, you know, I, I want my allegiance is given to him and I'm, um, he said, you know, repent and, um, believe that the good news about the kingdom of God has come. So like, I want to come into the kingdom and he's provided the way and, um, and it's, and that's it. There's um, nothing else. 
so it's not so much um, like I see the sacrament as a work, um, but you know, like earning something, but more of this is the method of receiving, I guess. Okay. So two things, and I hope I remember the second thing. Um, so the question is, yeah, remember that word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Well, what does he mean? Well, here's the thing. I The word, the Greek word that gets translated in the scriptures as remembrance doesn't mean so much the mental remembering. The, the Greeks, you know, the ancient Greeks had an idea of time more as a cycle than a line. So in effect, they felt like there were things that could come around again, that the past and the future could all kind of at times come together. Okay. And the Greek word that they use, the the Greek word is anamnesis, which really means something more like recalling in the, in the same way that, you know, in a, in a, in a secular term today, you might, a country might recall an ambassador, right? You're, you're recalling something definite, objective. So if you think about it then, in the Eucharist, Jesus is being recalled. You know, he died once for our sins and rose, but he did that for all people for all time. So on the one hand, he died, his death was a historical event that took place somewhere around the year 33 AD in Jerusalem. But if he is God, and he is God, and God has no, there's no time with God, right? Because there was never a time when God wasn't. God always just is. God is just an eternal presence. So in that sense, what Jesus did is something Jesus always does. And that's not saying that he's repeating this. It's the same thing that happened, but just it's always present. And so our belief, at least, and this is the Episcopal Church, and I wouldn't necessarily, and, I, and this might be a slight difference from the Roman Catholic understanding. Okay. Although I think even okay. Roman Catholics have this understanding about anamnesis, that when we do what Jesus told us to do, you know, break bread, take bread, bless the bread, break it and share it, and the same with the, and, with, and then with the blood, with the, with the cup, Jesus is being recalled so that we are present with him as he was present with his disciples 2,000 years ago. To me, the, the Eucharist is in some ways more a miracle of time than of, per se, space. It's more, it's like past, future, it all kind of comes together, which I guess is one way you can have your foot in the 4th century and one foot in the 21st century, you know? Um, and so... And in that way, yes, the benefits, the grace, and that, and the sacrament is, and we define sacraments as inward, at outward signs of inward grace, and that outward sign of bread and wine becomes the grace, the benefits of Jesus' passion for us. Okay, but then, in the Episcopal Church, we we say very clearly, you receive it by faith. I mean, Jesus is present, but whether you derive the benefit does depend on 
your mm-hmm. willingness to trust yourself to God, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whether your faith. So the benefit is there, but it's but it, but whether you receive it is up to you by faith. I hope I'm making some sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then what um, brought you into what gave you an interest in the Episcopal Church when you were a young fellow? Well, as I said, the sense of the sacraments, the idea that 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 Jesus, I, I, I know that, and there's a phrase I've heard said in the Episcopal Church, I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved, which understands that it's a process. It's a process. It's a lifelong process of being, of growing more and more into holiness. But that assurance in the sacraments of, here's Jesus, and he just let me eat him. And that's a little crude, but that's really what we believe. Jesus lets us uh, really lets us take him. And so the sacramental aspect, that blessed assurance, and then also I've always been interested in history. Mm-hmm. And so I, I felt like the Episcopal Church, because we have maintained um, the uh, many of the customs of the Roman Catholic Church, Eucharist, uh, the ministries of bishops, priests, um, you know, that we do consider ourselves part of the the universal, the Catholic Church, and I don't just mean the Roman Catholic, I mean mm-hmm. that church mm-hmm. that that was being called Catholic really in in, uh, in the year 120. Ignat- St. Ignatius of Antioch was the first person that we know of to refer to the church as Catholic. And so that tie to the, to the Catholic Church, while at the same time, um, understanding that, you know, the, 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 the Episcopal Church is part of the Protestant Reformation. So, you know, I, 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 I learned to uh, love uh, the Word of God in the, in the Southern Baptist Church. And when I was ordained in the Episcopal Church, you know, one of the principal vows that anybody who takes who's ordained in the Episcopal Church is that you, you believe that the, the, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments contain all things necessary for salvation. You know, we tr- the traditions like bishops, priests, and all that. That's that that's something that we hold to be important, but that's not equal to scripture. You know, we don't require anyone to believe anything if you if you if it's not in the Bible. Hmm. Yeah, and so yeah, that sense of so the Episcopal Church has something tied to the past, and yet also always, but also willing to reform when it needs to reform, just as the church needed to reform you know, in, in, in the 16th century. Um, and so that, that attempt, again, to kind of bridge the past, the present, and even the future, to, to try to discern where the Holy Spirit might be leading us in directions that we might not have anticipated being led into. Um, I think that, that there's a flexibility in the Episcopal Church that I really appreciate. So in the Episcopal Church... Do you all uh, consider what, you know, we consider apocryphal books. Do you consider that as part of the canon like the Roman Catholics do? Or do you have the same canon as other Protestants? We have the same canon as other Protestants. 
Okay. Uh, we do not incorporate the, the books of the Apocrypha into our Old Testament. Our Old Testament is the same as okay. the King James Bible. Yeah. Now, we do... A, 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 some of our Bibles do... We, when we, we put the Apocrypha in sort of in the middle. It's a separate section. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the classic formulation is they are useful for instruction, but not to be used in terms of formulating doctrine. Uh, they are, they're very useful historically. I mean, to some extent, you know, it, it helps to understand what was going on in Judea at the time that Jesus was there. If you read the books of the Maccabees, you know, which in the Maccabees were the family that basically led the resistance to the successors of Alexander the Great, who were trying to basically wipe out Judaism, who, who are trying to basically say, no, 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 we, you need to worship more than one God who even brought a statue of Zeus into the temple in, in Jerusalem. So, um, so the apocryphal books, they, I think there's wisdom in the, in the, in those apocryphal books, but no, our, our canon is the same as what the Southern is the Southern is what the Southern Baptists consider to be mm-hmm. the canon. So why your at- attraction to the patristics as opposed to another period, like the apostolic fathers or, some, you know, why the patristic period? Well, I kind of mean, well, I don't know. I mean, and I'm attracted to the apostolic fathers as well. I mean, I, I, I think the writings of Clement, who was the, basically the third Bishop of Rome, uh, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians and it's, it's wonderful to see just as Paul, just as the Corinthians seem to always give Paul a headache. uh, um, Well, they seem to be giving the church a headache about 40 years later, you know, Clement had to write to them and saying, y'all can't, y'all can't just kick out the bishop because you don't like him because, and Clement's the first to use the principle of apostolic succession, that, that the authority, the teaching authority, the 12 is handed down through the laying on of hands to their successors, the bishops, the overseers of the church. And then, as I said, St. Ignatius of Antioch on his way from Antioch in Syria to Rome to be uh, executed for being a Christian, but wherever the ship port set, you know, set port, he was able to speak to other churches and would write letters to them. And he was calling it the Catholic Church around the year 120. So I'm, 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 I'm attracted to all of the early church. I will say the patristics, and we're, you know, I guess I'm talking about the period really in the the fourth century when the church became legalized and to some extent questions that probably weren't as important when the church is just trying to survive, you know, some became more important, you know, so, you know, the council of Nicaea was in the year 325, not long after the church had been legalized. And, you know, it was not, it was not possible before then for all the bishops of the church to come together in the one place, because that would have been a very public, would have kind of put a target on them. But they could, and they, and it was, you know, and they, and they had to answer some very, some questions, you know, for, they had to clarify for sure. How do we know, how do we understand what it means to say that there is one God, one being that we call God, and at the same time, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, those are very basic questions that, that 
where we try to say, well, this is who we're worshiping. And it was the, the patristic era that, uh, that basically gave us those answers that we still, to a large extent, depend on today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just kind of thinking of yourself personally, um, what have you learned in life as you've gone throughout these years that's really made a difference to you? Is there anything that comes to mind um, that you know today about life that you perhaps didn't know before and it's important to you and um, anything along those lines? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say uh, the longer I've lived, the more what I began to learn as a young adult about love and that love enduring has only been more um, solidified. You know, um, you know, I, my, my mother died when I was 17, my father died, um, in 2000 and he was only like 29, he was only about 71, but he smoked for 50 something years. So, you know, that, and then, as I said, my, my brother kind of from all the effects of drug addiction died in 2015. And so, and and I do have a, a half sister. My father remarried, but you know it was kind of weird to feel a little orphaned. You know, you do when 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 everybody in your original family is not there. You at first you feel a little orphaned. But however, I I know, I just know from all the people who've loved me that you know one of my favorite verses in the Bible is when Jesus uh, says to Peter, "No one who has given up." fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, children, land will, for my sake, will, will fail to gain a hundred times as much. And, you know, if I substitute lost and that's how I, you know, sometimes for whatever, for for whatever I've lost, um, I know that I've gained more. But then the other thing I would say that I've learned is that, and it comes from this, this sense of community, and the sense of sin being alienation, and therefore, re- and therefore, salvation is really about reconciliation, our reconciliation with God and with each other. The extent to which salvation is a community process. We're not saved by ourselves. We are saved within a community. You know, and uh, so one thing that happened, I, I was confirmed in Episcopalian along with my wife when we were young adults. But then, as sometimes happens with Episcopalians, uh, we, we feel a little bit, well, maybe we should return home to Mother Church, you know. And I actually converted to Roman Catholicism when, oh, wow. I, when I was like in, in my late 20s. Hmm. And yeah. I was Roman Catholic for about um, nine years. But then I came back to the Episcopal Church because, you know, I was, I've always been, a, I, I've always considered myself a, a thinker and wanting to kind of work through problems. And, but in, in my early years, I realized too often I was, it was my search for truth. I'm going to find out the truth. And it took a while before I realized, well, it's, I'm not going to find out the truth. We're going to find out the truth. It's, it's in community. And ultimately where I, you know, and, 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 you know, my, and my wife did not, 
become a Roman Catholic. So in those years, we were going to, to both churches, and and through a lo- it's a long story. But eventually, what I really realized was that you know the truth is where God has actually made me a member of the body, the church, is in the Episcopal Church, and that's really where I belong. So I've learned that the process of being saved is not about a a solitary search for truth. It's a discerning of the truth in among the people of God. So what does that look like? Or can you give me an example of... Um, so something that's interesting to me is like we have a relationship with God. It's a spiritual connection. We can spend time um, reading the scriptures we can be meditating on God. We can, and I, I think that as he works in us, we, you know, shows us ways, if there there's a way we need to repent, you know, he, he gives us grace, everything we need to do that. And, and then we experience more joy. It seems we experience more of the, the fruit of the spirit. So there's that, and that's all, that all can be done just between a person and, and God. But when two Christians mm-hmm. come together or a group of Christians, it seems like there should be, you know, how to make the best use of that time or what can be done that requires uh, multiple Christians or at least two that you can't do on your own. Because so much you can do on your own. But um, when you come together, it's not just a bunch of individuals. There's something that can only be done um, among you know in by having other Christians around you. So how do you make the the best? So what is that? And um, you, know, you were mentioning discerning the you know truth together. What does that look like? And and what's the best way to? What's the thing that requires? other Christians that a person can't do just between them and God that we really need to um, make use of when we do have other people around us um, because it's just something that other people are required for other Christians. Right. Well, first and foremost, um, worship. I mean, you know, God, you know, and in, in, in all, and in, in if, if you read Revelation, you know, all the visions that we have of what it's, the glimpses of what we have, of what it's like before the throne, before God, worship is always something that's taking place with a community. It's the elders. It's the angels. People are worshiping in community as one voice in harmony. So one, I, I think corporate worship is, is quite essential to a Christian life. And then secondly, I think being able to discern because the spirit speaks to us, you know, we can, we may find inspiration from other things, but you know, through things around us, but ultimately we learn truth from hearing each other. We ha- we need each other to discern that. And so for instance, I guess uh, as, as an example of that, I might consider where I've come on uh, the issue of, of gays in the church and same-sex marriage. Uh, I was conservative about that issue for a long time. But partly, 
you know, first of all, it was knowing gay people and loving gay people who loved me in the Episcopal Church kind of said, well, wait a minute, you know, why, you know, they don't have horns on their heads, you know, they're, they're simply wired to seek union with someone else differently than I am. So what's the difference there? And, um, and that led to a deeper reading of scripture. And when I, and that allowed, and, you know, and this was still the Baptist in me that said, well, I, I, well, what, what can Jesus say to us? And when I, and finally, when I read at one point when Jesus was talking about, um, when his disciples asked him, should we be like you? In other words, should we, should we be celibate? Should we choose celibacy? And Jesus said, well, that's only for those to whom God gives the ability to accept it. Okay. And he said, some make some, some are what some are, some are born eunuchs. Some are made eunuchs. And then some make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, but let anyone accept it who can. And what I, and I think for me, the, the, the light bulb that went off was based on my relationship with gay Christians is, well, wait a minute. God, Jesus is saying we have the freedom to discern whether we are prepared to give up a lifelong, exclusive, committed relationship. And even though he may have been talking to straight men when he said that, the principle, the principle is the same whether you're straight or gay. And so even though Jesus in his own time was speaking in his own particular culture in a, with a particular cultural understanding of, the, of sexuality and, and, and all that, I realized, well, wait a minute. The print. Jesus would not look at a gay couple who've been together for 30 years and say, sorry, you don't get to choose. I just, I just don't believe that he would say that. And so... Um, and so that on, on the one hand, there was discernment, my personal discernment reading a scripture, but that started with just talking to people and, and, and being in a diverse group of people and understanding, well, okay, God's with them too. So who am I to judge? Okay. So there you were able to discern through just your interaction with others and getting to know them. And that was helpful for you mm -hmm. in coming to that place. Yeah. yeah. Correct. And, and I guess maybe some of this, it comes from my, my secular life before I was ordained. I've been ordained now about um, coming on 14 years. Um, and as a child, I was very interested in history and that led to an interest in politics. And so most of my adult life, you know, I lived with my wife and our one son, and we lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and I worked for a number of political groups. Hmm. And, you know, and I, I, I say this, it's, it's, it's like my, it's my opening phrase, people have heard this, but you haven't heard it yet, so great. <laughs> when I first got to Washington in the mid-80s, Republicans and Democrats could still have a drink. Mm -hmm. They could still go to a party. Okay. And I was in a, and I was in a world that was more ideological. Okay. It was more about dividing people. And I, and I, and I, that's, that was not cause I thought, well, we have the truth and we've got to fight for the truth. Well, by the early two thousands, it was already, it, it gotten so bad that 
And the Washington Post did a story on this about how Republicans and de Democrats couldn't even like start a carpool together because they couldn't have any discussion that got political. It, al it, almost, it almost always would get angry. Mm -hmm. And in those years, I think I latched on to another favorite verse in the Bible, Psalm 85, verse 10. Uh, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And I just and, and I just realized, wait a minute, this is not who I am. I may have enjoyed the role of playing political provocateur, but that's not who I am. Um, my my desire is to bring people together to to aid in the mission of reconciliation. St. Paul says that uh, we have been enlisted in the ministry of reconciliation and we are your servants for Christ Jesus sake. And so. So my, my desire for community comes from understanding how corrosive it is in our world right now that we are so much preferring to look for reasons to divide ourselves from each other than to look for common ground. Concerning, concerning love, community, relationships, that's um, an idea that you know everyone pretty much um, – you know, it's attractive to pretty much everyone um, to have, you know, rich and satisfying relationships and, and that kind of community. But in just our world, which is so busy, it's so easy for it just to be good intentions and not to um, go anywhere. And before long, you know, time has passed and, you know, not a whole lot has happened um, in your in your own life, is there anything um, that's been helpful for you as far as um, nurturing relationships, nurturing community, and um, where something does happen, it does grow richer and more satisfying as time goes on? Yeah, and that is such a challenge, even more so now over the last 15, 17 months, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's been hard. It's been hard in the church, mm -hmm. you know, when to do the right thing, which is to, you know, we were um, there have been about five months at different points that we've we've just had to close church, you know, because it just was not safe. Um, yeah, that is a hard thing. And then it's also hard. I, I, you know, I get. It is hard to trust because there's so many communities that are. You know, that that have wounded people. I mean, it is, um, boy, I guess I would come back to probably one thing that helped me was, was prayer. Okay. I, I, I would, you know, I would say I certainly prayed and did things, but, but I would say my, um, there's a tradition it's in, 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 in the liturgical churches, uh, called the, the daily office, mm -hmm which is essentially, which goes back to, well, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I think it's in Psalm 119. Seven times a day do I praise you. And that evolved into the, to the monastic custom of, of having prayer at specific times of the day. You know, of, and those prayers could, would consist of the Psalms going through the Psalms, which are really the most, one of the most wonderful books in the Bible because that's every emotion all the things that you think you can't say to God get said in the Psalms. It's okay. And it's okay to say those things to God. God's a big boy. God can handle it. 
Okay, so the the regular reading of the Psalms, and then scripture readings, regular scripture readings, and then prayer and silence, not just uh, saying prayers, but taking time for contemplation, for meditation. That cycle, and, and in the Episcopal Church, that's been simplified into the daily offices of what are called morning prayer and evening prayer. I mean, at, at nine o'clock here, when I'm going to be, I'm going to get on Facebook Live and and do morning prayer. And there are people who join me for that. Okay. Um, and I'll do it again with uh, Evensong, where I chant. Right, where I chant the psalms and I ch- and I chant the prayers, um, and, and so, you know, I, I I don't say just jump try to jump into some community because I know I can't ask people to do that because you don't know what you're jumping into. I, I guess what I but I do think it, it, it but it can start within you by looking by making an a reg, making prayer a regular thing, and I would suggest reading the Psalms and, 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 and letting yourself feel all of the emotions, joy, peace, sadness, anger <laughs> that are in the Psalms to realize that you can say whatever you want to say to God. And it's okay because it's, it's being, it's been said in the Psalms. So to some extent it does start with just having a relationship with God, having that personal relationship through prayer um, and that would be the first place to, to, I would say, to start. Okay. So I was going to ask, you know, I had jotted down on my notes here to ask about what routines do you take place in that make a difference in your life? But I bet your answer would be like your prayer and then the, um, daily offices. Is there anything else that, um, is, um, meaningful to you that, you know, you, you do on a regular basis? Um, I, I exercise, so we all have to find a way to do that. Um, the, what works for me now is I, I go down to the basement in our rectory and rectory. That's a fancy word for the place where the priest lives. It's next to the church. And so we have a rectory and we have a, a very nice basement down there. And I've, uh, and, uh, I go down there with a, I have, with, I have, I've got a, I've got some tennis balls and a racquetball racket. And I know that's mixing sports, but basically that's a very easy way. I can just kind of bounce. I can kind of bounce. I can volley off the wall. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I think exercising the body, you know, it, it, you know, you have to have, we are a body and a soul. And so kind of, getting those two integrated means also paying attention to your body that, that God gave you. And so that's my, I think that's my exercise uh, routine. Uh, as I said, my, my daily offices are a routine. Um, I'm still, int- I still, you know, I, Carl Bart. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was a great uh, theologian in the reformed tradition in the, in the 20th century. He once said, you should, you should read the Bible as though you're reading the daily newspaper, and you should read the daily newspaper as though you're reading the Bible. Which is to say, one, is the Bible. The Bible is real human beings working out their relationship with God in all sorts of circumstances, including political situations. And then, 
you know, God is speaking to us even in, in today, in the events of our world. So staying informed, uh, you know, about uh, politics is important to me. And I, I guess I have one, my, the, the one I have different, there are different things I, I read, but I guess, uh, my favorite, uh, source of news, it's been for a long time is the economist. Mm. That's, uh, mm-hmm. a British mm. news magazine mm-hmm. that is, um, it's, it's, I think it comes from what it calls the classically liberal tradition, somewhat more libertarian, but not, not libertarian. The point is saying there should be no government. It, it's, it's not against government, but it's Jerry's favor. Jerry thinking freedom is the best policy mm-hmm. in markets and in society generally, but it, but it's, uh, and, and, and it's British and they just always have, there's just, they have a cheekiness about them. <laughs> You know that I kind of appreciate a certain wit, certain wittiness that I appreciate. So, uh, so staying informed, um, prayer twice a day at least, and uh, and some and exercise wherever you can find a way that works for you. Yeah, um, yeah. You mentioned the body that we are bodies, and we depend so much on these bodies, and sometimes we don't. I think that we don't realize it until our bodies start giving away, um, you know, either temporarily or some at the end, you know, eventually it won't be just a temporary problem, but we'll all be, these bodies will be wasting away and we won't be able to depend upon them anymore. And it's, I think it's at that time that we, a light is shined on our relationship with God. Like, is there something there beyond just this, um, you know, is there something to support us or when this body gives away, is it like, well, that's all we have, <laughs> you know, um, you probably experience, um, people who, you know, are experiencing the, um, this body that they've lived in and depended upon giving way, um, where, you know, it's just not going to be there for them any longer. Um, Like in your own experience of you personally or in other people you've been with, um, have, you know, does that uh, connection with the God um, uh, seem to be there and uh, be uh, present and stronger than just, you know, relying on our bodies? Yeah, so um, so on a personal basis, you know, on, on a personal level, it, it, it's interesting. A couple of months ago, let's see, May, actually about three months ago, um, had 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 a not so good report card on a number of things: cholesterol, sodium, you know, blood pressure, you know, and and I had to admit, and I had to okay, uh, there's been, there's been some gluttony here, comfort food, you know. And so kind of changing my eating habits to realize we are what we eat and that there are other ways of getting pleasure from eating other than pizza, you know, <laughs> um, that even that is, is it involves self-examination and that's, that's a small thing, but that's, you know, I don't know, I'm 60, so I am becoming, I am at, I'm, I am definitely becoming more aware that I am closer to the end of my physical life, uh, than the beginning mm-hmm. Um, and so that knowledge, you know, there, there's a, uh, there, an, an Anglican, you know, when I say Episcopal, you know, the Episcopal church is descended from the church of England or the Anglican church. And there's a, 
an Anglican writer from the 17th century named Jeremy Taylor, who wrote a book called Holy Living, Holy Dying. Hmm. And basically saying our, our entire lives, we are preparing to die. Mm -hmm. And that's true. And so, you know, uh, make a, make a good preparation for it. But then on another level, you know, but then reaching out, um, you know, I will say I've, I've had a witness about trusting in having faith that there are realities other than just the body comes. I, there's a, I had a call earlier in January of this year from a woman who had, um, when we looked her up in the record, she, she had been, you know, she had been raised at St. John's and she'd been in the church, but she'd been inactive. She, I didn't know her. Nobody remembered her. Uh, but when she called, she, she called because she had just uh, been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And at this point, all of her family were gone. She had, she had good friends and she, her friends loved her. I mean, a lot of them came to her funeral, uh, but she, I thought made a, 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 a courageous decision that she chose quality of life over quantity. She basically immediately said, I, she said, I'm no, we're not going to do aggressive treatment. She chose palliative care. That is comfort mm -hmm. care. And you know, mm -hmm. If she had chosen aggressive treatments, she would probably been so tired from chemotherapy and all that. She wouldn't have been able to come to church regularly for us to have conversations, spiritual conversations, and to share things, and for me to to help her uh, real, you know, find grace where she needed to find grace because she just would have been too mm -hmm. tired. So we had a wonderful relationship over about four months, and then she quickly. As you can imagine, quickly de she declined, and she passed away. In fact, it was um, I got a call from the nursing home she was at, and she was dying. And I had known that, but the but then I got a call around seven in the evening, and and the nurse said, "You need to get here now if you want to do like last rites." And that's where you say final prayers for someone before they die. You anoint them with oil. Um. I got there and she literally took her last breaths as I was reading last wow. rites. I think wow. the nurse said she was waiting for you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but no, she, Maria, yeah. that, that was, that was a life of faith. And I think that comes from being able to trust that life as Jesus defines the fullness of life. I came that they may have life and have it in fullness. Um, is not about the quantity. It's about the quality. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from your background, being both political plus a Christian and church background, is there anything in particular that comes to mind as far as just the crucial issues of our day and in, in culture? Is, are there, you know, is there anything big or major that's on your mind that you think, um, you know, it's really uh, an important issue that we're dealing with right now. Um, you know, yes, I, you know, I am, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes I've seen this, I've seen this in, in the Episcopal church, not, not from everybody. And I don't know if maybe you've seen this or, or, or not, but, um, 
I think there are Christians oftentimes who are almost, uh, they come close to being closet Marcionites. And Marcion, I don't know if you've heard of Marcion. Marcion was a, a Christian writer in, in the uh, patristic age, but he he basically believed that the Old Testament was not, he, he basically took the view that that was a different God. He, he, because he read all the, he read the stories of people slaughtering each other and God seeming to slaughter people. And, you know, and, and I think that there's sometimes a discomfort with that. But to me, I, I have, I think particularly as we've gotten more divided, I, I have found consolation in the prophets, the prophets of mm-hmm. Israel who spoke truth to power. And there and the truth that they often spoke to power, I mean, sometimes they spoke about the truth of moral degradation, but just as often, if not more, they spoke the truth of oppression and injustice mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. rulers who um, were ignoring the the, the the physical needs of the people. Mm-hmm. And um, and the and so I have that that speaks to me. And you know, I, I think I'm, I'm very concerned about where we are with questions of race. And I believe that we are, there has to be some sort of reckoning with the, I'll call it the two foundings of America. And, you know, some people have complained about the New York Times 1619 project, which seemed to imply that, that slavery, that the first bringing of slaves in late August of 1619, that was the true founding of America. Well, a month earlier in Jamestown, you also, you had the first representative assembly in British North America. So that's also a founding. We have these two foundings and I mean, some call it, you know, President Biden calls it the soul of America, right? We, I think in our soul, in our collective soul, there is this struggle between the hope of people who've come here to have a better life, a new life, and and to find and to understand that we don't need strong men to govern us, that we can govern ourselves. That hope, that last best hope on earth, as Lincoln called it, and then right beside it, the truth, and it is a truth, that at least for the first, at least for the founders, that that hope really only existed for white European Protestants. Mm-hmm. That's that is the truth. That 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 initially, this last bep, the, this the shining city on a hill, it was only for a certain group of white people, and and that's also in our founding, and you know, and the prophets really kind of try to get to the heart for the people of Israel and Judah about uh, the injustice and oppression that they, where they had failed to enact the covenant of God. That is as much about justice as it is about personal, uh, personal righteousness. And so, um, but how to do that in a way that just doesn't simply say, okay, you, we took a pound of flesh from you. Now we're going to take a, you, you took a pound of flesh from us. Now we're going to take a pound of flesh from you. How we actually get to reconciliation, which I also believe mm-hmm. in. I mean, those are complicated mm-hmm. issues, and I'm not here to suggest a certain policy. You know, I don't. 
I will say as a political person, I, I, I came to understand how everybody compromises in, in politics, left, right, Democrats, Republicans. So I don't, I don't say, quote, if you're a good Christian, you must be a Republican, or if you're a good Christian, you must be a Democrat. Um, and questions of policy are good people can have disagreements. But, um, but I think morally, we are at a point where we are, we are afraid. Clearly, there's, there's fear of decline in the country. But I think there's a deeper fear of how do we face the, the contradictions that are, that are right there at the beginning, the, very, the, the, the contradictions in our very founding um, of light and dark. We have to reconcile those. And that means having an honest conversation and not getting defensive, mm-hmm. which I think too many people are getting defensive about it. Um, and I, I try to do as much as I can, as gently as I can to, to help my people see that. So, yeah, that's probably what's on my mind when I think of where uh, God's purposes might be intersecting with the destiny of the United States. And I guess what comes to mind is that there's kind of a, a couple different ways to view that. Um, so, so that's what the world was like. It's not like a few men came to um, the new world and decided that they were going to um, put the emphasis on like, you know, white men. Um, Well, that was what the Western world was like at the time anyway. So, um, so one way to kind of think of it, or at least something to keep in mind is that um, that's where we were, but we've also overcome you know, we were a society that overcame slavery and have overcome a lot of injustices and um, that it, that it was like a long, hard road. I mean, it, um, it, it took time, um, but there's, um, but there's anyway, there's something, there's that aspect of it, of it as well. Um, do you think so? <laughs> okay. Yeah, we've absolutely made progress, it, but I think the problem is we've made progress, but we've also regressed. Okay, you know, um, I mean, yeah, we 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 got rid of slavery, and then after a very brief period where we actually were empowering African Americans as equal citizens, mm-hmm. we basically shoved them back into what amounted to slavery, and let that continue for almost another. Hundred years, mm-hmm. um, and and the truth is, we've only been—if you think about it—we've really only been a true democracy since 1965, mm-hmm. with the Voting Rights Act. That that when we finally said, "Okay, uh, African Americans are full-fledged citizens of this country, and they they should not be denied." You know, the Civil Rights Act of '64 basically said, "You can't." keep them out of public places and the voting rights act of 1965 said they have to have the right to vote and whatever and 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 however many dodges uh, certain communities come up with to try to keep them from voting no you cannot do that so it's uh you know we've we have made progress and i don't deny that at all but i think the truth is we also have to be willing to see where we've also at times regressed 
and might be regressing um, now uh, with with the increasing racial resentments. Um, you know, here's a, a story that that kind of puts it brings it home for me in our parish. Okay, we have I have a parishioner who told a story, and I and I asked her to put this in, and I asked her to write this in our newsletter, and she did, and and the headline was. Do you, do you see who I am? And she talked about how in different parts of our city over the last two years, she's been singled out because people saw her darker skin and, you know, Hispanic and they, oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm not Hispanic. I'm white. Someone in a doctor's office, someone loudly said on some form, you know, where, where it had to pick racial Oh yeah, I'm not Hispanic. I'm white. You know, somebody did that, and there's some other things. Now here's the punchline: she's not Hispanic. She's Navajo. Hmm. In other words, people saw her skin and made assumptions. Mm-hmm. And of course, frankly, mm-hmm. she encountered prejudices growing up as Navajo uh, in, diff- in in different parts of the country. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's just a basic. I don't know what it, I'm just a, a basic fear of diversity um, that too many people have. And maybe it's just because they're just afraid for the future and feel like there's only going to be so much wealth and it's got to be, we got to make sure that we get ours, you know? Um, so we have made progress. I agree with that, but we have also regressed and, the, and, and that and that struggle is not over. Well, thank you, uh, Father David, for the time. It's really a privilege to me to be able to speak to you, a, a fellow Christian, but someone from a, a different perspective. And I can kind of just ask you things, you know, that I'm curious about. So I really appreciate that. Is there anything that you want to um, bring up before we sign off? Uh, any particular topic um, or or anything like that, or just to, uh, a way for people to um, know how to follow you if you had um, anything like that? But. Sure. Well, um, I, I, I am on Facebook. Uh, it's David P. Kendrick. In fact, if you, I even was able to register my name way back when, when Facebook allowed you to do that. I think it's facebook.com and then backslash David P. Kendrick. So I'm pretty easy to find. Um, on, on, on Facebook. Um, and so usually that's usually the best way to, and it's a public page, so it's pretty easy to find me there. Um, and I, I just, you know, I, I, as I said, I, 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 I am an Episcopalian now and cause that's where I felt like God wanted me to be, but you know, I don't look back on anything that none of my upbringing, it's all been part of a, a, a growth. As I said, I, I learned to love the Bible in the Southern Baptist church. And, um, so I, you know, I, one thing in the Episcopal church that we make very clear is that if you've been baptized in the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit, you can take communion mm-hmm. because we believe we are all one church. There is one church, one faith, one hope, one baptism. That's what it mm-hmm. says in Ephesians. Yeah, there is really one church. Mm-hmm. The Episcopal Church is a part of that church. The Southern Baptists are a part mm-hmm. of that church. And, mm-hmm. and I do believe 
um, that there's more that unites you and me as brothers in Christ than divides us. I, I truly believe that, and um, I and I hope I and I and I hope I and I hope I haven't somehow given the impression that we're you know that there's this wall between us because there's not. There's not. We're all we're all judged by the same word, and we're all saved by the same grace. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Father David. Thank you. you have a good day. You too. God bless you.